Well, we are in a teaching series on the New Testament book of Romans, and we call this series Subversive Peace, Reading Romans Backwards. Romans is an important book in the New Testament, not least of which because it is Paul's longest letter, and it has helped shape Christian theology for nearly 2,000 years. But it's also an important part of Western culture and history due to its prominence in the Protestant Reformation. For the past 500 years since the Reformation, many Westerners have learned a particular way of interpreting the book of Romans. And I'll demonstrate this way of read by reading a couple excerpts from my textbook from undergraduate Bible college. Doug Moo writes, Romans focuses on individual human beings. Romans emphasizes justification by faith because Jews were teaching justification by works. Doug Moo isn't interested at all in the fact that when Paul was writing Romans, there was no such thing as individualism, because it hasn't emerged yet in history as a philosophical understanding of the self. Doug Moo also isn't interested in the fact that pitting faith against works in Romans makes Paul seem like he's at odds with James, who said, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This decidedly and deliberately individualistic interpretation of Romans that pits faith against works as if they were incompatible not only distorts Romans, but it also distorts the gospel. Here's what Moo writes. The gospel, as Romans 1, 16, and 17 makes clear, is basically about the restoration of the individual sinner's relationship to God. Here, Dr. Mu is wrong again. And wrong about nothing less than the foundation of our faith, the gospel. Romans, 16, Romans 1, 16, and 17 actually doesn't contain the gospel at all. Romans 1, verses 1 through 4 does contain the gospel. We talked about this last week, if you remember. Verses 16 and 17 talk about the benefits of the gospel, or one of them. The byproduct, what the gospel does. Namely, verses 16 and 17 talk about the power of the gospel, the righteousness of God. It, and what it, when it talks about the righteousness of God, it's talking about God's faithfulness to God's covenant. God has created a space where Jews and Gentiles can form a new people of God that is no longer marked off by ethnic boundaries. Now it is marked off by allegiance to Jesus. And if you're still confused about the difference between the content of the gospel and the benefits of the gospel, then you can listen to last week's sermon, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> but I've read these quotes not only to correct my graduate undergrad, uh, undergraduate textbook author, but more importantly to show that Western culture and Protestant tradition has given many of us lenses through which we have grown very accustomed to interpreting Romans. We don't even realize we're doing it anymore. We just think we're reading Romans plainly. But there are ways for us to see our lenses, to have our lenses exposed and to begin to see from a different perspective. And that's why we've been reading Romans backwards. Which simply means that in this series, we are paying close attention to the cultural and historical context of Romans 
so that we don't interpret it as a systematic theology textbook or abstract it out of history and culture. Romans is a pastoral letter written to specific people in a specific place and time with specific challenges. And in particular, we have learned that there was conflict in the house churches of Rome. Conflict between a group that was so-called so weak and the group that was so-called strong. This is the backdrop. This conflict is the backdrop to every passage in Romans. So rather than interpreting it individualistically, we are interpreting Romans as a way of life, a lived theology, to teach the disciples in Rome how to live as one new family in Christ. Where we left off last week was we were talking about the benefits of the gospel, the ones that Paul emphasized. I showed that in the opening verses of Romans, Paul specifically teaches the content of the gospel first, Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus is the Lord of all ethnic groups. Then he teaches the benefits of the gospel. Not only what we're accustomed to reading, forgiveness and life in the age to come, but a different benefit, a surprising benefit for those of us who are modern individualists. Paul emphasizes the gospel's power to create a new community out of the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one new humanity. And where we left off last week was with me saying this, that in all the years I've been pastoring, I've pastored in New Orleans, Boston, even a little bit in Illinois, um, in LA, and now St. Paul. In all the years I've been pastoring, nobody's ever walked up to me and said, I really need to be convinced how I can be individually forgiven and go to heaven when I die. No one's ever done that. But that seems to be what we always emphasize. Here's what I get asked all the time, like every day, like once a week, at least, okay? What does the gospel have to say about division? How do I learn how to walk with people who are different from me, who see things wrongly, <laughs> who see things from a different perspective, who have different cultural practices from me? How do I love them with the love of Jesus, right? And this is what I love most about reading Romans backwards. This approach makes these questions come alive in the text. We see clearly how Paul is teaching about how we can love one another across these cultural differences. What we find out is that God's Spirit has infused Romans with divine wisdom that specifically addresses this fundamental social and ecclesial challenge. It's been there the whole time. We just didn't see it. Because we have been reading Romans through these individualistic Western Protestant lenses. Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at a very controversial passage of Romans. This passage has been called a clobber passage because it has been used like a club to beat other people over the head with. But we're going to take a closer look at this passage, and we're going to see that in the context of the conflict between the house church factions in Rome, that rather than this being a universal condemnation and indictment of all humanity's fundamental sinfulness, that this passage is actually about how factions stereotype one another. And Paul is teaching us a better way, the Jesus way. I'm going to argue this morning that Paul uses a rhetorical trap, much the way that Hebrew prophets did long before him, to expose the sinfulness of this judgment. 
But before we dive into the text this morning, let's pray for the Spirit's illumination. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would shine your light of wisdom and truth and understanding upon the text of Scripture this morning as we read it together. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be in the midst of us, opening up the Scriptures to our hearts and to our minds, helping us to see what it is that you want us to see and hear what it is that you want us to hear. Be with me this morning as I teach, and I pray that my words would be honoring to you, and I pray that, uh, that you would ultimately be lifted up. And I pray that this morning we would all see how that you would have us be more and more conformed to the image of Christ as a fellowship, as Roots Covenant Church, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, if you have a translation of the Bible, you are welcome to turn in it to chapter one of Romans. Otherwise, you're welcome to follow along on the screens behind me. I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard, and I'll be reading from 118 to 211. Starting in 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also their men giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Verse 28. And since they did not see, it, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They were gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know, they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but they applaud, even applaud others who practice them. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches, riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But by your hand and impenitent heart, 
You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6. For he will repay according to each one's deeds those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. While for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Amen. The word of the Lord. It's important to keep in mind that when Paul first wrote this, he did not number the verses and add chapter breaks. As I've said before, these were added centuries later. So it's important for us to see that this whole section is one continuous flow of thought. And it's also important for us, for, for us to understand that the chapter break between 1 and 2 was put in centuries later, but it does mark a rhetorical turn in Paul's flow of thought, which is very convenient for us. The latter verses in chapter 1, from verses 18 to 32, are a devastating critique. They outline a de-evolution into sin and the incurring of God's wrath. But they also seem to come a little bit out of nowhere. If you read before this, Paul's like all praising them for their faith, and then all of a sudden, the wrath of God. It's not immediately clear who this is directed towards. But if you're like me, and you've been formed by Western individualism, I immediately think that this is a general critique of all humanity. That this section is universal. It's about all people everywhere, and it's a retelling of humanity's fall into sin. But if we're really intentional about reading Romans backwards, if we're really intentional about fighting that urge to read Romans individualistically and abstractly, and we are reminding ourselves to keep in the forefront of our minds that conflict between the so-called weak and the so-called strong, and making sure that we remind ourselves that that's the backdrop to every passage in Romans. All of a sudden, this passage takes on new contours and new dimensions. What if, instead of being a general, universal critique of all humanity, what if this is actually aimed at one of those factions? How would that change our interpretation? As it happens, Historians, for a long time, have noted the similarity between this passage in, in Romans and another piece of Jewish literature that shows up in the Orthodox Bible and the Roman Catholic Bible, but was left out of the Protestant Bible. This piece of literature is called the Wisdom of Solomon, or just Wisdom. Here's what historian and biblical scholar Jonathan Leinbaum writes. The language Paul employs in Romans 1.18 through 2.5 in terms of vocabulary, theme, and argumentative structure has deep parallels in the early Jewish textual tradition. This is especially true of Wisdom of Solomon chapters 13 through 15, which like Romans 1.18 through 2.5 considers the relationship of Jews and Gentiles before God within the human history of idolatry. The parallels between Wisdom of Solomon and Romans 
makes them readily comparable. Here's some examples of passages from Wisdom of Solomon that sound very eerily similar to Romans chapter 1. For the worship of idols not to be named is the beginning and cause and end of every evil. But just penalties will overtake them on two counts. Because they thought wrongly about God in devoting themselves to idols and because in deceit they swore unrighteously through contempt for holiness. Or listen to this. For all people who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know the one who exists. Nor did they recognize the artisan which paying heed to his works by paying heed to his, while paying heed to his works. But they suppose that either fire or wind or swift air or the circle of the stars or turbulent waters or luminaries of heaven were the gods that ruled the world. You see, these parallels to the wisdom of Solomon don't necessarily mean that Paul endorses the theology in wisdom of Solomon. Wisdom of Solomon also contained some very sketchy material some exaggerated and derogatory claims about the differences between Jews and Gentiles. For example, Wisdom of Solomon doesn't teach that human beings are all sinful before God. Wisdom of Solomon paints Gentiles as inherently sinful and Jews as inherently innocent. Wisdom of Solomon 13 through 15 is an extended and unrelenting polemic against idolatry and the immorality that inevitably follows, functions within wisdom's recasting of scripture's history to reinforce the distinction between Israel and non-Israel. Non-Israel is idolatrous. Israel is not. So the dividing wall of hostility that Jesus came to destroy between Jews and Gentiles was the exact dividing wall that texts like Wisdom of Solomon were building brick by brick. Do you see that? It's like Wisdom of Solomon employed a well-worn stereotype of sinful Gentiles to reinforce the narrative of Jewish innocence and privilege. When we keep the context of those house church factions, the weak and the strong, when we keep that in mind, then we see another usage of this stereotype by Paul. We see that Paul is using it as a rhetorical trap. It's a trap. <laughs> That's what it is. Paul is using this very familiar language from Wisdom of Solomon that stereotypes Gentiles as extremely depraved and deserving of God's wrath while portraying Jews as completely innocent. He's using that language to expose the prejudice and the judgment that was present between these two groups. The so-called weak were predominantly Jewish, Torah-observant disciples of Jesus. And they held some derogatory and denigrating views towards the so-called strong, who were predominantly Gentiles and didn't keep Torah. Here's what Scott McKnight writes in his book, reading Romans backwards. The words in Romans 1 are a standard Jewish stereotype of the godless, idolatrous Gentiles of the diaspora. Romans 1, 18 through 32 does not describe all humans. 
The language of wisdom of Solomon in Romans 1 is strong, but 1, 18 through 32 is rhetorically shaped to turn the tables in chapter 2 where we meet the judge. Whoever the judge is, and I will suggest that he is a major representative of the weak, he becomes the target of Paul's rhetoric as one who is a hypocrite. I suggest that the judge is either amening or speaking the words of 1, 18 through 32. But Paul puts those words in the judge's mouth so that the judge's words can be turned against him. The judge is judged by the judge's own accusations because the judge is sinning in similar ways. Do you see it now? Paul turns the tables on the judge who represents the weak. Here's what he says in chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in the passing judgment on others, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. That's a rhetorical smackdown. Paul has just turned the tables on the judge who was amening all along. Yeah, get those Gentiles. They're depraved. They deserve God's wrath. And then he says, and you do too. Oh. This rhetorical trap that Paul has lured the judge into reminds me of another famous rhetorical trap in the Bible. Do you remember when the prophet Nathan confronted King David? After King David sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and then killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband? Here's how the story goes. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he, had did, because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Nathan was gangster. Can you imagine walking into the king's palace and saying that to King David? He could have been like, off with your head. But in the same way that Nathan drew out King David's righteous indignation against the one who committed the same sins that he had, and then turn the tables on him, Paul does the same thing to the judge in our passage this morning. Paul uses a stereotype to expose the judge's prejudice. The judge in our passage was trading on stereotypes about people who were different from him socioeconomically, culturally, and ethnically. He had one single story about those Gentiles, that they were depraved sinners who deserved God's wrath. And this reminds me of a very famous TED Talk that you might have heard by a Nigerian novelist named Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Thank you. 
It's been viewed over 20 million times. Her talk is entitled, The Danger of a Single Story. If you haven't seen this already, I strongly encourage you, go watch it this afternoon. What she talks about in this talk is that when she was a child growing up in Nigeria, she was very interested in literature. Parents of educators, she learned to read very young, but the stories she read were all European stories or American stories. And so all these, all these cultural things like snow and uh, drinking tea and all this other stuff that wasn't native to her became part of her world. And she thought that's what literature was. You had to be American, you had to be European to be in these stories. She had a single story about stories. And then she talks about how her family had domestic helpers from poor villages. And she only had a single story about them, that they were from poor families. So she was very surprised to discover that not only were they poor, but they were also brilliantly talented artisans. Then when she came to the United States for college, her roommate had only had one single story about people from Africa. And so her roommate was very surprised to discover that Nigerians could speak English and use stoves. <laughs> Imagine how insulted you would feel if that was the single story that was told about you. But then she talks about how she felt so ashamed when she fell victim to the single story that she visited Mexico and she was very surprised to discover that Mexicans were more than just the stereotype of abject immigrants. Here's what she says in her talk. The single story creates stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, that they are incomplete. So that this is how you create a single story. Show a people as one thing, as only one thing, over and over again, and that is what they become. She goes on to say, it's impossible to talk about the single story without talking about power how they are told, who tells them, when they are told, how many stories are told, are really dependent on power. Maybe you will resonate with this example. How many of you were fascinated by Alexander Hamilton before 2015? <laughs> Not that many of us, right? But when, when Lin-Manuel Miranda told his story from a different perspective, now millions of people have useless trivia in their heads about Alexander Hamilton that they never had before, right? Miranda opened our imaginations to think about Hamilton differently, to realize that Hamilton was an immigrant, that Hamilton created some things that, that we just take for granted as part of America today. Miranda opened our imaginations to consider that it was perfectly appropriate for black and Latin, Latinx actors to play the so-called founding fathers, right? He opened our imaginations by telling a different story. Miranda exercised a form of power, the power to shape our imaginations around people, their families, their cultures, and their world. This past week at my day job, my day job is uh, I work with court-involved youth in North Minneapolis. And each week we have a theme that we talk about in, in group. This week's theme was conflict. And as we were talking about conflict, we wanted them to learn the skill of seeing things from another person's perspective. And what came to mind for me was a children's book that, we used to, that Oshita and I used to read to our kids when they were little. Have you ever heard of this book? 
It's called The True Story of the Three Little Pigs. One of my favorites. In this children's book, the wolf gets to tell the story from his point of view. He argues that the single story that's been told about him is all wrong. He's not a bad guy, it's just a big misunderstanding over sugar and sneezing. <laughs> it's great. And when I was reading this to my kids when they were little, it felt so subversive. I, I felt like I was, I was doing something really radical. We're going to teach our kids to think critically. <laughs> they've been taught that the wolf is the bad guy. But what if that's not true? What if the wolf has been framed? I asked one of the young men in the group, have you ever felt like someone has told your story in a way that defamed you? Where you were misunderstood? And somebody brought up the cops. And somebody said, the cops don't know our stories. And I said, do you think that the police ever ask or want to hear your side of the story? And one young man said with resignation in his voice, I don't even bother trying to tell them my story. I know they won't believe me, so I just say, go ahead and take me to jail. Heartbreaking. Show a people as one thing, as only one thing, over and over again, and that is what they become. How have we fell victim to the single story? How have we absorbed from our culture a single story about those people? Whoever those people are to you. The other. Right? How have we judged and cultivated prejudice in our hearts. What our text this morning does is it exposes and challenges our stereotypes. Paul was following in the footsteps of his rabbi, Rabbi Jesus, who said, Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, Let me take that speck out of your eye, while the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. Take, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Isn't it easy for us to forget the teachings of Jesus? We so easily forget what he taught us about judging others. And if we as Roots Covenant Church are going to lean into our identity as a new people rooted in Christ, as a multi-ethnic, multicultural, and multi-generational community, we are going to have to be cognizant of the power dynamics in our midst. We are going to have to help one another see our blind spots. And we're going to have to be open to the Holy Spirit saying to us, you are that man. We have to interrogate our prejudices, our stereotypes, our single stories about others. And I believe that the church is the Holy Spirit-empowered community that makes space for us to do that work. I believe that the gospel calls us to confront these challenges with grace for one another, but by forging a better way forward. And this month, later this month, all across this country, millions of people are going to be confronted with cultural differences around the Thanksgiving table. Are we not? And the proverbial Thanksgiving table gives us an opportunity to forge a way forward. But there is another table, another table that helps us 
and help, it gives us power and wisdom to forge that new way forward. It is the table of our Lord. The Lord's table is where we acknowledge that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord of all ethnic groups, the Lord of everyone, regardless of where you come from, or regardless of your identities. The Lord's table is where we proclaim with one voice, Jesus reigns and we do not. Jesus reigns and the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed. Jesus reigns and white supremacy is defeated. Jesus reigns and patriarchy is defeated. Jesus reigns and homophobia is defeated. Jesus reigns and sin, shame, death, and Satan are all defeated. Amen? We are invited to come together around this table as those who belong to the household of Christ. Sisters and brothers who in our baptized lives live out the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are the family of the reborn and the reconciled who inhabit a universe of grace. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask Pastor Oshita to join me. Uh, and I'm going to invite you to this communion table this morning. Pray with me.